Hey everybody, welcome to Grubstakers. Today we're going to be talking about the largest museum in the United States and fourth largest in the world, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And we're going to be talking about its CD underbelly because just talking about paintings is a little boring. Also, Yogi will be reviewing Oceans 8 and we'll talk about all uh, the fun celebrity bullshit that goes on at the Met Gala. So uh, buckle yourselves up because we're starting now. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens that they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. www.blowme.com All right. I like that they applaud that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it gets an applause break. That's how good it is. All right. In five, four, three, two. Hello. Welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. It is a snowy, slushy night here in Brooklyn, uh, but people for the, on this podcast are going away this weekend, so we got to record tonight. We've got a we, super birthday weekend. We have to That's bring true. you this content, because otherwise you'll listen to any one of the 1,800 <laughs> other leftist podcasts that record in this city. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm Sean P. McCarthy here. I'm joined, as always, by my friends. Yogi Poliwal. Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. And so this week we got a special episode for you, and it's it's specifically focused on the dark side of the Metropolitan uh, Art Museum, as well as just kind of like the billionaire, shady, money laundering uh, aspect of the art world. And for that, we're uh, joined by a very special guest, a uh, retired security officer and museum expert, uh, Miss Veronica Cohen is here. Hello, this uh, is Miss Cohen. <laughs> uh, and thank you for being here. And um, before we uh, get into it, we'll kind of run through the history of the Metropolitan Museum and again, talk about how it relates to some of the other billionaires we've talked about in the past. I did just want to like do a bit of housekeeping up front. And uh, we all do want to apologize for audio issues on the previous episode. We had our uh, guest, Amy Therese, uh, doing a remote from Australia. Um, and this is our first time doing a remote interview. And yes... We could have asked any of the literally dozens of Brooklyn podcasters we know how to do a remote interview, but we much prefer but to just... But we're better than them. But we, we, we prefer our strategy of just racially profiling Yogi Pollywall. <laughs> hey, the show's free, all right? <laughs> Whatever complaints you have, you can stick it up your ass. And just making him all do all the work. We're just His here dad to, made Excel. We're, right. we're yeah. here to destroy Yogi's life, <laughs> his relationship, his dreams. Oh, the white man ruins an Indian man's life once again. <laughs> but we're exploiting him economically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, oh, if at any point you notice audio or other issues with the podcast, you can always tweet at GrubstakersPod, and we promise we will all ask Yogi to do something about sure, it. Sure, <laughs> sure. I might do something depending on my mood. That's really how I treat <laughs> All tech problems addressed to grubstakers at pod. Um, but uh, again, big thanks to our guest, Amy Therese. We hope you enjoyed uh, the interview. And in spite of the audio problems, we'll have them fixed next time we do any sort of remote thing. Oh, and I was also... We might not. <laughs> <laughs> no guarantees. No. 
Uh, I was also going to apologize for opening our interview by calling Australia a backwards island. Wow. And then uh, later mocking the mass murder of Australian soldiers at Gallipoli on Veterans Day, no less. Oh, no, I was the one who mocked it, and I don't apologize. (laughs) Well, I was going to say I was going to apologize, but actually the comments from our listeners in New Zealand were very positive. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually stand by all of that. I would like to issue the correction that Australia is a forwards island. (laughs) Oh, Oh, and while we're apologizing, I'm sorry I was sniffing on the episode two weeks two weeks ago. But yeah, I edited like two percent of sniffs, and I was like, "Fuck!" There's this still shit. a ton of sniffs. Yeah, there's way too many. <laughs> but you know what? Look, these are growing pains. We've only been podcasting for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna figure this stuff out soon. Hey, we just figured out how to release nine months ago. So. <laughs> I mean, if you guys loved listening to sniffs, I'm sure you really love us talking about how you listen to sniffs. <laughs> the podcast about podcasting. The meta podcast. Meta. Uh, I'm going through but, some meta podcast. <laughs> but without further Sometimes ado. I sneeze, I pee. Without further ado, uh, we're here to talk about the history of the Metropolitan Museum and kind of the dark side of that. And I, I did a little bit of research on um, the history of the, the Metropolitan Museum here in New York, if you haven't been. Uh, it used to be free. Uh, as of uh, this year, they have instituted a $25 charge for out-of-state visitors. Really? Yeah, if you have a New York license, uh, you, you can get in still for free. It's a suggested donation. But because of you know financial problems uh, of their own making <laughs> that we will get to, uh, art is no longer free. But. Aww. I did just, uh, so I, I just kind of will run through the brief chronological history of the Met because it is uh, pretty fascinating. Uh, and, and basically what happened was the Met was created in 1870 by an act of the New York state government. And interestingly enough, there's a, another 1893 act uh, to that original one that supplemented it and said, quote, the museum shall, quote, shall be kept open and accessible to the public free of all charge throughout the year. And this is a law in 1893 saying that it has to be uh, uh, free. And yeah. they actually had to like go in and fuck with this to al- allow them to charge wow. It's worth noting this year. that uh, in the law, they define public as no Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, and it's pretty uh, uh, fascinating, like early history. Um, there was a... a a book on this uh, written by Michael Gross called Rogues Gallery, but he writes about how, like, essentially, uh, he says, the Metropolitan occupies state-owned building, uh, a state-owned building sitting on public land, has its heat and light, part of the cost of its maintenance and security paid by, uh, you know, New York City. And he he just kind of writes about, even on the early days, Mm -hmm. they just kind of treated this as their own little public fiefdom, like the rich people. Like, apparently on the early days, it would close on Sundays, even though that was the only day working people in New York actually had to go to the Met. And uh, But the trustees would still open the Met for their, like, private friends and and these kinds of things. And they've they've since phased that out, right? (laughs) No, it's still open on Sundays. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I think they close on Mondays now after like some spat with New York, I think in the 70s. No, it's seven days. It was it closed is. on Mondays. Oh, okay. Oh, seven right. days. Yeah. Because right. of the rivalry with MoMA. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting thing going on too that mm-hmm. we'll we'll get into with uh, Mr. Tom Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy of the soups? Yeah, yeah. He's the soups and he's also the art guy who fucks. Oh, well. I thought they all fucked. Oh, right. oh no, but this guy, this guy really fucks. Really? Yeah. Okay, you know me, I'm always he, a fan of a guy that he fucks. He is slinging that dick what? from Rembrandt 
<laughs> to Jeff Koons. Okay, all right. Yeah. Well. I do like that they just opened on Mondays out of sheer spite that the MoMA has the better Van Gogh paintings. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so the story of how the Met got its original collection is pretty fascinating to me. And it's just like one of those fun little historical characters you find. There's this Italian guy named Luigi Palma di Cesnola. Hmm. And it's like that name is just so Italian. Yeah. It led to the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti. <laughs> <laughs> you just like you say that name to a to a jury and they will immediately mm-hmm. put the first Italian they see to death. <laughs> But uh, the mob was like, "You're laying on it a little heavy." <laughs> <laughs> it was was not invented by a racist cartoonist at the turn of the century. <laughs> it was an actual name of a, a Guinea kleptomaniac. <laughs> um, but so Luigi uh, uh, Palma, he's a, he's the first director of the Metropolitan Museum, and essentially. The brief story of his biography is he's born in Sardinia in Italy. He's a, a soldier briefly. Then he comes to New York. He marries a wealthy woman. Nice. Uh, he enlists in the U.S. Army for the U.S. Civil War, where he's a colonel in the Civil War. But even during the uh, uh, Civil War, he um, is reprimanded and accused of stealing contraband and sending it north. I think what? like six Remington nice. pistols he stole and sent up north and stuff. Uh, but he was a colonel in the Civil War. He actually won the Medal of Honor. But after the war... He- I will say, for an Italian-American, mm-hmm. it you have the best out to be like, yeah, I'm, I can be racist. I fought for the Union. I freed the <laughs> slaves. <laughs> I can use that word. No, I didn't steal any pistols. Well, it couldn't have been me. I don't even own a P.O. box. <laughs> No, I was just trying to save them from Sherman's fire. <laughs> they were they were in a building in Atlanta and they were going to be wiped out. Um but so I bring up his reputation for thievery because the the story of how the Met got its original collection is basically this. Using his connections, his wealthy wife, his, you know, uh, civil war accom- um accomplishments he was able to get appointed the u.s consul to cyprus from 1865 to 1877 during this time the ottoman empire controls uh, the island of cyprus and uh it's because of his experience in italy he like even wrote about that he knew how to deal with the ottoman authorities so what he does is from the entire time that he is the u.s consul in cyprus he engages in a ton of excavations which are all like through bribery unauthorized whatever and ships over thirty thousand priceless artifacts off off the island uh apparently five thousand more were lost at sea in transit to the united states (laughs) Uh, and these were artifacts These were artifacts, they date from uh, 2500 BC to 300 AD. So again, like, you know, like tons of Roman history, all these other like ancient uh, um, uh, artifacts and monuments. Apparently, like some of them, he just like completely slap shot, put together. And yeah. like a bunch of people questioned like the authenticity because he just like would grab shit and just throw it together. <laughs> Listen, to get a painting, you got you to gotta break a couple of paintings. <laughs> and, uh, and so basically he... Like the the one thing that he did that was like the people mention is like honorable was he insisted that he would only sell the collection to one person. He didn't want to. He, he right, could sure, have sure. theoretically made more money selling it all over the place, but he sells his entire collection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And again, by collection we mean entirely stolen. Yeah, right, right, from right. both the government and people of Cyprus uh, to the point where they still like. They, they've actually the government in Cyprus today has been like asked about this, and it's a very contentious issue. But like. 
one of the presidents, I think, said something like, oh, it's more prestigious to have these objects in the Met or whatever. But basically... Even the subtext being, we're Cyprus. What the fuck is <laughs> yeah, going right, to do right, about right. this? Really? What a fucking chooch. No, we like it being in New York. <laughs> um, but uh, I believe today there's still 600 items that were looted by this guy from Cyprus wow. on display or in collection at the Metropolitan Museum. And then uh, the one final great thing about this guy is, uh, as I mentioned, he was a colonel in the uh, U.S. Civil War. He was nominated to be a brigadier general, but he was never, the promotion was never approved by the Senate. But on his gravestone, it says he's a brigadier general. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> so even in the grave, he's stealing valor. Yeah. Wow. What a beautiful chooch. But uh, that's, I mean, that's basically. Fucking respect the hustle. Yeah. And that's basically the story of how, like, the Met got its early collection. As we mentioned, you know, sort of a playground for the rich. Um, uh, after, sort of. Yes. <laughs> a playground for the rich uh, Guinea con men and uh, <laughs> valor thieves. Um, but, uh, and then, like, from that point, you know, J.P. Morgan is, like, a really influential person at the turn of the century. He kind of gives the uh, uh, modern Met its, uh, 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 it, he gives the Met its modern characteristics, um, and, and I would love to do like a future episode on J.P. Morgan, again, born to a rich banker, uh, uh, heavily involved in the trust at the turn of the century. He was the Federal Reserve before we had a Federal Reserve. And people uh, don't know this, but the J.P. stands for Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then the other part. So he, uh, J.P. Morgan was president of the Met from 1904 to 1913. He loaned or gave it like much of its collection. And this was, you know, his so-called philanthropic giving. But interestingly enough, the entire, uh, he created the Mets Egypt exhibit. And I watched, mm -hmm. like, I think half of, like, some pro-Met uh, documentary. And they just kind of brush over that. Like, yeah, he, like, sent these, uh, he, he got the Met to start doing archaeological digs in Egypt. And then <laughs> what's left unsaid is uh, what happens after they do the archaeological <laughs> dig and where the objects go. So basically, he got the the Met its Egypt exhibit by stealing yeah. all of these, and you know, interesting you know. fact about the uh, Egypt uh, exhibit is it is actually the world's oldest uh, cocaine tray for Lady Gaga, <laughs> and then, um, but so J P Morgan was the more on that later. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, J.P. Morgan was the president uh, of the Met until 1913, and then his son would attempt to overthrow FDR in a fascist coup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was the business plot in the United States where uh, some leaders of business tried to recruit out-of-work veterans to institute a fascist government. Smedley and get, Butler. Yes, yeah, Smedley Butler, up. yeah. Smegma Butler. <laughs> I mean, that happens yeah. all the time, though, Sean. I don't know why you're pointing it out. <laughs> That's the common practice for businesses. He's like, uh, <laughs> he he walks into the uh, uh, the bust of Julius Caesar. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> you know, if I just get enough veterans together, this could be me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, and then uh, the kind of uh, the only other kind of notable thing. Uh, or, well, not the only, but the other notable thing I found was basically during the Great Depression, the Met was almost entirely kept afloat by John D. Rockefeller Jr. <laughs> so it is just like something where, um, I guess, you know, uh, I don't know all the details. I know like the Louvre in France receives a lot more public money than the Metropolitan do uh, Museum does. And, you know, it's kind of like whatever you want to call it, tradition, history in the United States, where these museums kind of have to rely on wealthy benefactors 
to, sure. you know, out of the, the goodness of their largest, um, provide culture for uh, the rest of us. And as we've mentioned, in the, in the case of the Met, this is very <laughs> much ended up being used as kind of a private uh, hangout for the ultra wealthy with a lot of public money going into it. Yeah, it seems like uh, when rich people want to hoard, they have spaces for their useless shit that they stole. Well, it also mm. feels like in France, a lot of the rich people uh, just couldn't get ahead <laughs> <laughs> at a certain point. Oh, really? Yeah. What was holding them back? <laughs> um, I, I the think force it, of gravity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think a slice of metal between their <laughs> chin and their shoulders. That would do it. Yeah. That would do it. French or not French, that would do it. <laughs> Um, but so that kind of brings us up to the present, you know, the Metropolitan. It's interesting, like, as we mentioned, you know, this was created by an act of the New York State Legislature. Interestingly enough, there's a, a law in New York State that New York One State... One of the last things they did. <laughs> 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 they, they went to sleep until they were like, oh, it's time to give Amazon $2 billion. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Um, but so one of the, uh, uh, there's a statute in New York that says the New York state, uh, uh, government has oversight over charities and, uh, nonprofits and these sorts of things. So they actually do have statutory authority to exercise a lot more control over the Met. But unsurprisingly, when you have a government that is, uh, giving $2 billion to the richest corporation on earth, uh, they tend to not aggressively utilize their oversight authorities. What? Um, <laughs> But you know, and That's so crazy, Sean. Right, but you so, sure about that? <laughs> but so even though the, the the government does have oversight in New York State, the the Metropolitan Collection, it's owned by a private foundation of about nine hundred and fifty individuals, including forty one elected board members, uh, such as Anna Wintour, who runs the Met Gala. Oh, I know her from the movie Oceans Eight. You guys <laughs> see that movie? Oceans Eight takes place at the Metropolitan Museum, so it's technically topical. <laughs> that movie sucks. Was uh, was there a part in it where she uh, screams at George Clooney that he won't be invited back if he's on his phone I, I, next year? <laughs> what, Sean? Clooney's not even in Ocean's 8. No. Oh, why would we have any of the original cast in this movie that has the name Ocean's in it? Well, I, I, Do I, they have animatronic Bernie Mac in it? <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved that. No, they didn't do anything with it. It was a terrible movie. They had Aquafina, who's from Queens, but when they introduce her, they're playing Notorious B.I.G. He's from Brooklyn. Did you do no research, Ocean's 8? It's a movie with zero compassion and zero chemistry on, on screen because they made a bullshit movie for bullshit people. Well, you know, instead of... Uh, they couldn't get Bernie Mac for obvious reasons, but they did get Steve Harvey, uh, and he told all the women how to respect their men. <laughs> <laughs> and then he accidentally introduced the movie as Ocean 7. <laughs> Well, uh, Ms. Cohen, you, uh, w- would you say that the security in that movie was accurate? Do they have like lasers guarding all the, the diamonds? <laughs> <laughs> no, we are not given any lasers. <laughs> um, I did not see the movie. I was not present when it was taking place, this robbery. Uh, so it was an inside job and you were part of it? <laughs> I cannot speak to that. <laughs> Here are my favorite Amazon reviews on Ocean's 8. Profoundly bad. Boring. Lifeless. <laughs> I want my two hours back. <laughs> A boring copycat nonetheless. Nonetheless. We all know what that means. Interestingly enough, uh, I want my two hours back is also what people tell Anna Wintour after the Met Gala. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, I, we did find articles about like so A-list celebs who have decided to not go to the Met Gala anymore, right. 
and their entire they're like it's really hard to be personable for two hours and then like dress up for it and it's like you mean yeah. your job you mean that's the, really yeah. the most difficult thing about your life you know ever since El Chapo got locked up the coke at the Met Gala has <laughs> just not been up to par <laughs> Um, but did we want yeah, to talk uh, about the the Met Gala? Or yeah, I guess we, we talk about that now. Yeah. yeah. So uh, from from what I understand from uh, what uh, Ms. Cohen has told me is, is that, and you you can speak on this. It's it's basically celebrities wear expensive clothes in front of cameras. It's like an Oscars without Oscars, and then they go inside, get uh, completely blitzed, and abuse the security staff, mm-hmm. particularly. I would say Nicki Minaj. (laughs) Really? I think like I read a New York Post story that uh, Demi uh, Lovato or whatever, she was quoted as... say that name again? (laughs) Demi Lovato? (laughs) (laughs) Lovato? You're good. You're good. Just continue. Our listeners will love that. I I wish I could do one episode without doing this shit. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, regardless... Regardless of Demi's last name, uh, she uh, there's a New York Post article I read about the the Met Gala. It's the one uh, Yogi shared, uh, but it was basically uh, she was quoted as saying that some celebrity was a huge bitch to her. And then the, the next sentence in the New York Post story was: Most people speculate this is about Nicki Minaj. <laughs> You're not wrong about that. Either. <laughs> And then, like, the other thing from that story was, I guess they were, like, smoking in the bathroom and people were complaining that these, like, I don't know, 4,000-year-old artifacts were getting smoke all over Oh, yeah, what was it? The Kardashians were smoking pot in front of, like, (laughs) thousand-year art. Yeah, there's a restroom in front of the facsimiles of all of the hieroglyphs from the Egyptian wing that were made in the 20s. And there are some sculptures outside of the restroom that are many thousands of years old. (laughs) <laughs> and they were all smoking the reefer in the bathroom. <laughs> and we saw the smoke fumes come out. We had to call the fire marshal. It was a real it was a real problem that night. Did they did they post it to Instagram or was that You know, I don't know about that. Oh, okay. Things, but I believe it was in the news and okay. I saw it on Entertainment Tonight. It was terrible. <laughs> I just like the idea of um, somebody going right up to the mummy and being like, oh, cool, an ashtray. <laughs> 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 the mouth opens and everything. <laughs> that is one of the weirdest things about the Met is that there there are mummies there and it's like, oh, like, you know, they've got like art over the face where it's like a painting of the person's face and stuff. And it's like, oh, that's good art for like, you know, 3000 years old. Also, there's a corpse in there. <laughs> And you're just supposed to be like, oh, interesting. Yeah, corpse. It was the last person who displeased Anna Wintour. <laughs> um, Let's not get ageist, Sean. Slow moving, flat <laughs> characters. Love the actresses, but so boring, they forgot the drama. And then when Kaling and Blanchett were mad that critics were like, this movie sucks, they're like, oh, most critics are white. So, I mean, like, you know, they don't like women on on screens, probably. And uh, the people that weren't white that were reviewing it were like, "Uh, I'm not white, so maybe you didn't read all the fucking reviews, Kaling and fucking Blanchett. And hey, maybe if your movie's so good uh, in diversity, maybe give the characters that aren't white last names. How about that, huh? In the movie, uh, all the characters that have last names are white, incidentally. This is a true fact. Uh, Rihanna's character is Nine Ball. Why? No reason. She opens up a uh, pool hall at the end, calling it Nine Ball, but Ball's not her last fucking name. All I know is that George Clayton Johnson is rolling over in his fucking grave. Also, who plays Nine Ball? 
Rihanna. <laughs> Every everyone just plays regular pool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nine ball's fine, but no one plays it. I play, I, I, I really like nine ball. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I've why. only played it from Super Monkey Ball. It's nine ball is amazing. It's it's very straightforward. There's no real rules except go in order of the balls. Yeah. You're not asking the important question though, which is uh, what percentage of George Clooney's salary did the ladies make? <laughs> <laughs> was it seventy six on the dollar? What I think was so. It? I think so. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, the Met Gala. Is, I mean, it's just pretty fascinating to me. Like you hear talk about it when it happens every year, and it just seems like Anna Wintour's little private show to. Uh, yeah, it used you know, to be a charity, right. right? At some point in the fifties, it started as like a charity. I think. I believe it was Miss Vreeland, also mm-hmm. from Vogue, oh. who. She wanted to shore up the coffers for the Costume Institute, didn't, which didn't get very much money. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And at one point, we were able, the staff were able to participate in these parties. We would pay $100, we would go, it would go all night, it was a party. They quickly corrected that error. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, oh shit, we're treating the staff well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 100, we meant 10,000. Oh, that God. is not in the spirit of the foundation of this museum. <laughs> But yeah, like, so again, and I, I only just know this from this New York Post article, but so basically, like, you have to spend, like, I think 20 to 100 or even 200,000 to get, like, a ticket to the Met Gala. And even then, it's all, like, subject to Anna Wintour's right, veto. Right. Like, if she doesn't like you, it's like, no, even though you're, like, rich, you can't come. Well, yeah, it was like you the Kardashians got banned. Was it for the pot or. It's because they're pure trash. <laughs> and well, then, I can't disagree there. Well, and then Kanye forced them to let the Kardashians back in. Yes, I remember this year. It was very embarrassing for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I have to see her. He was, uh, I believe, performing, and she was pregnant, and she looked like the upholstered version of a couch from the 40s. <laughs> I remember this. I remember this. I remember this in the gossip racks. And we were all just ashamed that we had to let her in. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kanye had a two-hour conversation with a Monet painting. <laughs> but he won. Were you there? <laughs> My goodness. The accuracy. He's like, yeah, I could be blurry too. I mean, I, I never put my mind to it, but like, you know, I've, I'm, I'm pretty much a blurry painting, like, you know, in my soul. Yo, I think this artist was just nearsighted. <laughs> he's like calling people and he's like, hey, I figured it out. <laughs> Yo, you with the glasses, take them off. Doesn't this look perfect? Now I'm going to let you finish, but I think Gauguin had the greatest impressionism of all time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the Met Gala. And again, this is like, uh, it speaks to a larger societal problem with relying on rich people to provide their crumbs for charity, where it's like, you know, ostensibly this started as some sort of charitable event, but it's just entirely turned into like a cele- celebrity publicity machine, a, a marketing event. Um, it's part of a conspiracy to ruin Twitter for a day. <laughs> Am I misremembering or did Cardi B and Nicki Minaj fight at the Met Gala? I think oh, it was that a somewhere? different event. It was a different event. Yeah. But yeah, anything else about the Met Gala? You'd say drug use. Is that a copious thing? Uh, yes. They usually go in... I mean, there used to be a post for the gods. We used to have to be in there to make sure they weren't snorting coke off of the floor. Mm. They, we wanted them to use it on the counter. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're part of a union, so after many years of negotiations, we got taken out of the bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so that's no longer a post. 
Do they have to post someone next to Vigo the Carpathian to make sure that um, a spirit doesn't just you know manifest out during the gala? No, that's also a labor violation. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea of like uh, some secure union security guard standing there watching somebody snort coke and being like, "I'm on my union break. <laughs> it's 20 minutes, okay? It's in my contract. You can look it up. It's not my problem for another 15." <laughs> Were you mentioning Lady Gaga though? Is that I, I'm just wondering if you have any dirt like that? Oh, I just spec. I, I mean, do you do you want to go into the one you do know about? Of using coke in the bathroom. I'm trying to remember the last person. It was it was someone who was pre Lady Gaga, but the same Madonna, maybe. Yeah, there was you had a story about like. Everyone was like, oh, man, Madonna's doing coke in the bathroom. Oh, that's right. No. So this was what happened in the Alexander McQueen potty mm-hmm. where Madonna decided she needed to use the restroom, but there were too many people using coke in the women's room. So she decided she was going to go to the men's bathroom. Well, how progressive. <laughs> Do coke there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of my coworkers was trying to pursue her into the bathroom to get her to go out because, you know, we're very strict about gender the binary and in 2011 now it's a little more flexible but uh but back then though it was pretty serious 2011 it was very very strict divide hard rules <laughs> and uh so she went into the men's room and one of my coworkers tried to get her out and her her bodyguards didn't want her to be harassed while she was in the restroom naturally and they were sharing selfies of her that she had taken of her twat Oh, <laughs> sharing as in showing one another or texting one another? I, Text. I I don't know what these kids do with okay. their phones these right. days, okay. but apparently her vagina was out there. And my coworker is a very shy gay male. He but, was disgusted. But was it like a virgin? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it very much. So, uh, yeah, that's what happened that year in the bathroom. Too much coke on one side, you know. Too much muff on the other. <laughs> I know. I mean, not only do you have a physical woman in there, but also a photo of a vagina okay, in the men's room. Very meta. Uh, blasphemous. Do we want lines or a slit? And <laughs> I did not see it. Security is like telling her that Coke is bad for her, and she's like, Papa, don't preach. <laughs> um, she's made up her mind. <laughs> But I guess uh, if there's nothing else on the Met Gala, we can talk a bit about kind of like why they are in a financial hole. Because that's yeah. an interesting story. Well, first I want to kind of go into sort of what the Met is uh, for wealthy people. Because I've the this whole thing is, is fairly interesting. Um, it's essentially many of the artworks are at the Met are on loan. Right. And it it's often used as a way... Uh, Sort of the first order, um, there's sort of a lot of different levels to it. And like kind of the first one is a bit of reputation washing. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the most uh, obvious one is that uh, David Koch, he's on the board at the Met. He's put a lot of money into the Met. Uh, he has a fountain outside of the Met that's named after him. Oh, Koch Fountain? Yeah, yeah. Does the water in the fountain <laughs> does the water in the fountain get more acidic every year? <laughs> <laughs> If you light a match to it, it goes on. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody goes by the David Coke fountain. They're like, wasn't there fish here like 10 years ago? <laughs> One of the reasons they banned smoking in the past. <laughs> yeah. 
and but yeah, the Sackler wing. Uh, the we've, Sackler we've wing. We've mentioned the Sackler yeah. family is the famous Purdue Pharma opioid heroin epidemic family billionaires. So, you know, it, yeah, as Andy's mentioning, reputation laundering. Yeah. Oh, and the best one, <laughs> in my opinion, is uh, they have a room with a bunch of uh, suits of armor. Hmm. And uh, our old our old elven uh, Hispanic friend, Michael Bloomberg, uh, he named he he gave a bunch of money to the Met Mm -hmm. and named that wing after his daughters. Oh, what? uh, Emma and Georgina uh, courtyard. What was it called? For something, something, something. Arms and armor courtyard. Arms and armor courtyard. Yes. And it was, he said it was like to protect his daughters. <laughs> like, for besides the fact that that's creepy as hell, like, it, it, you know, it's in the message that I will always protect my daughters even right, when I'm right. gone. It's also clear that it's like, oh, he, it's, it's also like his ideal society, like, oh, feudalism. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. The Michael Bloomberg. Um, that seems like a move I'd pull as a parent if I like fucked up royally hard with my daughters. <laughs> uh, uh, I bought you a museum with <laughs> It's like the last ditch effort to right, right love. Yeah, exactly. What's Bl- funny is like his daughters Bloomberg. are probably like, yeah, whatever, Tad. Bloomberg's like, so do you have like a smaller suit of armor? <laughs> 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 Maybe like four foot three or something. Uh, but yes, no, it's good that uh, Michael Bloomberg is able to use the money that he got uh, being mayor uh, and uh, benefiting off his Wall Street connections that he was selling terminals to. And then, of course, providing all these subsidies for Wall Street, protecting Wall Street, using the NYPD to buck, bust up Occupy Wall Street, and just all of these ways that he protected the bottom line interests of Wall Street that was, of course, feeding all of his vast fortune through Bloomberg LLP and the Bloomberg terminals. So it's nice that he's able to uh, do that and yes, protect his daughters. To, to protect his daughters. With all that uh, definitely from, not ill-gotten money. From from dragons and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Islam. <laughs> They're the same thing, Andy. <laughs> Never forget it. Don't forget Vikings. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the kind of second level thing that I find the most interesting is uh, that a lot of the stuff that's on loan um, has to do with art investing, mm-hmm. which is a big hobby of billionaires these days. Really? Um, it's like, it's apparently, according to um, this article in Believer magazine, uh, I don't in- believe it. <laughs> art investing is uh, a relatively not, like not to be confused with the Me Too publication. Believe her. <laughs> <laughs> that one's spelled with clap emojis. Um, the uh, Believer magazine uh, article points out that it's it, uh, art investing is a relatively uh, recent phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, historically that actually kind of came with the rise of uh, capitalism in in the sense that. Uh, in pre-capitalist societies, most wealth went into land. Right, right. And now in capitalist societies, there's much more kind of free cash moving around. And so in order to like kind of give that cash a home, people will often park it in paintings. And so now if you like look up art investing online, you'll see like 20 different articles where they're like a billionaire's uh, mm-hmm. guide to art investing. And they're like, pick one you like. I bought this one that was worth 30000 but I liked it, and it grew to like a million or so. You know, it's, it's right, shit right, right. like that. Um, now you say this cash is free. <laughs> <laughs> no cage around it or nothing. 
just to kind of like tag that, like there was a, a New York Times article I saw, which which talked about uh, money laundering in the art world, because that's the other aspect of it, mm-hmm. where like uh, New York Times estimates uh, there were about $63.8 billion worth of art sales in 2015. Wow. And it's kind of similar to like how you can essentially buy a luxury condo in, say, New York or Miami if you're trying to launder your money. Right, right. Like there was a case in this New York Times piece about like some Malaysian officials who like stole a bunch of public money and then yeah. bought like some multi-million dollar paintings from Sotheby's just as a way to launder that money. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And a, a, part, a big part of it is that like the auctions are oftentimes kept anonymous. Right. Uh, they don't reveal, like there was a, what was it, a $500 Da Vinci that um, many people suspect might not be a real Da Vinci because it involves a glass. It, it's like Jesus holding a glass sphere, but the light isn't deflected in the sphere and people suspect that Da Vinci would have known that how it would have been deflected and tried to portray that so they think it's a I fake. was I was suspecting it wasn't real when you said it was five hundred dollars. <laughs> right, right, oh, right. Uh, oh, for five hundred million. Sorry. <laughs> I, I just also love like the only nerdiness that I see comparable to art uh historians are like sneakerheads. Mm-hmm. Like it's the same <laughs> level of like, no, no, those aren't Jordans. You see uh the lettering needs to be closer to the swoosh, you know? Like it's the same type of mania. But y- uh, yeah, I was just going to say on the laundering front, this New York Times article is from 2017, but they talked about how like um, the, the U.S. Treasury has started to implement steps to get rid of shell companies and anonymous buyers for luxury condos in like New York City, Miami. Right. Uh, so they're starting to implement these kinds of like disclosure steps. But of course, the art world hasn't done that yet. So to the point where like a lot of times auction houses don't even know who the seller is, well. much less the buyer doesn't know who the seller is. So it is like because of the anonymity it is a great way to launder money in addition to the investment uh, uh, perspective which Andy looked into a little more yeah it's it, it's also interesting because there's some artists who um, will just like who just come up immediately they they kind of grift their way out of art school and into the art investment market like yeah, that makes sense yeah <laughs> there was uh, there's this guy uh, Lucian Smith who is uh, He's actually younger than most of us. He was born in 1989. And right out of art school, he started selling these paintings where he just kind of took the Jackson Pollock thing and was like, it's about the process of it. And so he he made what he called raindrop paintings, which were just like a fire hose spraying paint on a canvas and then selling it for like $10,000 or something. And he would make like 30 of them. And like at the end of one of the art investing articles um, that I read, I think it... um, it was it was a relatively recent one. It was from like 2017, and they were like, "Yeah, you know this guy Lucian Smith. Uh, you know sometimes you have to be careful because uh, his stuff was selling. You know three years ago it was selling at about uh, fifty thousand, but now his his works are only worth one thousand. And then I found another article in the Village Voice where they just outright call him a fraud <laughs> for all the shit he does. And that one came out in like 2014. Wow. Like it lined up perfectly with their time frame of all of his art losing value because like the preeminent cultural voice in New York just called it bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Which it's also funny because like since then, a billionaire bought the village voice and shut it down. Yeah. <laughs> and so like... Who's I, worthless now, village voice? Yeah. I like to think it was like the same guy who just like bought twenty of his artworks that were became worthless after that article. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like what well, it is too bad though. You know, like uh, Andy uh, Yogi and I all 
do you know comedy or stand up whereas like we should have just gotten to the grift of like the art world oh yeah it's yeah. just like making shit to like sell to billionaires which you can't really do with comedy you can't yeah, be you like can. you want to you want to Ninen, millennial comedian dan Ninen. yeah we could all Future be posting guest of grubstakers dan we, Ninen. we could be posting selfies and private jets and pictures of us standing awkwardly next to a tesla looking 80 years old and saying that we're 18 to the New York Times. Hey, some of us are planning on doing that anyway. I'm just imagining like going up to a billionaire and being like, so do you want to invest in my question? Uh, Is anybody here on Tinder? (laughs) (laughs) You know, one thing I uh, unfortunately have to say about Dan Ninen, anytime he's brought up Uh and someone mentions that terribly hacky uh, mom, Japanese, dad, Indian joke, and it's the punchline of uh, I get my sushi at 7-Eleven, no one ever says it incorrectly. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, he might be the biggest hack, but that one joke, everyone fucking knows. It's so sad. Hmm. I mean, it's it's got it's perfectly constructed. It, you got to hand him yeah, that. Yeah. Hmm. In the same vein of me respecting Nazis for freeways, I got to say, Dan Ninen's <laughs> 7-Eleven sushi joke, it does murder. It does murder. They also made some great tanks. <laughs> <laughs> and the first jet engine. <laughs> And the first ballistic missile. I'm sorry, which of my podcasts am I on? (laughs) Am I on the one I do anonymously? (laughs) Um, If we had producers, they'd be like, cut, cut the feet, cut. Uh, But I'm sorry, uh, was there anything else in the article? Yeah, but enough about 1488 with John McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So... No, well, another another example of this is uh, Damien Hurst, who had uh, he was famous for having a, a shark in the Met mm. uh, that was just sitting in formaldehyde, which apparently uh, was, quite... was disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> whenever it was summertime, it just smelled like oh, the Jesus worst Christ. gas in the world. Really, Mark Cuban in formaldehyde? <laughs> <laughs> it like and what was it? It poisoned some of the guards from like the formaldehyde fumes. Yeah, people would get very faint, and they would you know have to take a lot of restroom breaks, and our managers they didn't were just like that. so emotional experiencing the art. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely, and all, it it. Uh, apparently, also like they, uh, he calculated the formaldehyde wrong, and the shark rotted, Jesus and he had to replace Christ. it for a buyer. Oh my god! <laughs> um, but also, he um, another way like money kind of gets laundered. He's created a, th- a sculpture called "For the Love of God," where he took a real human skull, uh, encrusted it with eight thousand six hundred and one diamonds, and then sold it for uh, what was it, a hundred million? It's either 100 or 500 million. It was supposed to be the most expensive work of art ever sold. Oh, 50 million. The asking price was 50 million. Oh, okay. Um, ever sold new. Reasonable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Trump change. highest price ever paid for a single work by a living artist. And then it came out after he sold it that the buyer was partially his own company. <laughs> like he was just driving up his own yeah. art price. Um, most art is propaganda, including the art. Yeah, yeah. Like he was just pumping money into it to make it more valuable. And basically what the way that the uh, museum is used in terms of money also is that one of the things that's mentioned in these articles, uh, one of them is from a guy from Blackstone, uh, you know, real we've, quick, we've, I, we've talked about. Uh, real quick, I do want to say that I, I do like Sean's idea. Like, if I had an art exhibit, I'd be like, "Yeah, I need uh, someone cutting onions at all times." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a dry eye in the house. His art's very moving, very moving. <laughs> so my um, exhibit on World War One features actual mustard gas. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, that's how we got rid of the union. <laughs> um, Blackstone. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, Blackstone. And um, so yeah, or is it Blackrock? I don't Blackstone. know. Blackstone. Blackstone. By the way, I just need everyone in this room to know this. Every time we say we've said Blackrock, I've thought about editing in uh, uh, um, Frank Ocean's Crack Rock every time, <laughs> and then I'm like, it's going to take too much work. But every time we say it, I think we should edit in Frank. Well, I'm editing this one, so yeah, it's going to be. Them Essentially, the uh, in the article, what they say is that a piece increases in value when you put it in a museum. Mm-hmm. So what a lot of these art donors will do is they'll just donate, you know, high-end works of art, but with the purpose of driving up its value, its resale right. value. Right. That's pretty fascinating. And therefore yeah. their net worth. And so one of the uh, most interesting things uh, was David Cope had uh, this piece that was called... Uh, That's a very disrespectful way to talk about Mrs. David Coke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Shipwreck in Stormy Seas. That is a terrible way to talk about his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Which the, the, the seas were more stormy because of climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was what Ms. Cohen pointed out to me. It was like, they're all about like weather. Oh, really? Like, he just has this weird fascination with weather. And what's interesting... I subliminal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like subconscious or like kind of like how George Bush paints veterans or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. You're like trying to work out this like deep thing wow, where you're like yeah. spreading global warming denial and like deep down you know you're doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he not even deep down, just yeah. subconsciously. <laughs> I, want, down, I want everything on my wall to remind me what a monster I am. <laughs> well, apparently he would like walk in to like look at his painting, and I, I just imagine him like seeing those like waves crashing, and he's like. Yeah, take the poor. <laughs> take him into your depths. I've seen him walk into the gallery, and personally, I believe he was there to make sure nobody set the paintings on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and you said he, he looked like one of the tree people from Lord of the Rings. Yes, I'm a big fan of those movies, and he looked like an ant. <laughs> I'm just imagining David Koch asking somebody to like alter the painting to put in the Philippines being taken underwater. <laughs> It's also funny that he looks like an end because you know when he watched that movie, he was just like rooting for them all to get set on fire. Um, so uh, he he put these paintings. Uh, he originally, and I think they're going back to the uh, National National Gallery in London. Oh, and what happened there was that around the time that he was donating these paintings, he also donated uh, several million dollars uh, to their endowment, and at the time. Then they started pursuing this program uh, where they would make working conditions really bad for the unionized security force. Like they would give them hours that would make it impossible for them to hold down a second job. They would also just like push their schedules around. They tried to extend their hours. Uh, and it was essentially a pressure campaign to get it so that people would quit. And then when uh, union workers would quit, they would be able to start to hire non-union workers right, or right, get them right. to sign a non-union yep. contract. And eventually they went on strike for about 100 days, uh, the union, and they ended up losing. They had to like cede it over to like a private contracting company, uh, a lot of the security detail. And what happened after that was damage to the art just jumped (laughs) hell yes and so then david coke pulled his painting from the london gallery and moved it to the met where they have a unionized security Ah. force 
and kept the, it there for a the while. The number of people wearing their backpacks instead of <laughs> holding them at their hand like a buffoon just increased <laughs> astronomically. Do you think the David Koch Cato Institute will write about this union issue? <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> I, I think that that gets us to where we can maybe start talking about like labor at the Met. Like, oh, oh, first, I guess we can talk about the finances at the Met. So the Met's basically it's got its um, its board is basically a rogues gallery of the richest people in New York, mm-hmm. along with um, other other people like Henry Kissinger, um, who you know he the great statesman who also has more genocides to his name than probably any other person living or dead he brought the southeast asia collection <laughs> personally i saw him <laughs> southeast asia latin america um other continents too i'm sure andy ends all of his sentences like that <laughs> And uh, so, also Bangladesh. Also Bangladesh. So apparently, a uh, problem started at the Met when uh, first there the old uh, director of the Met retired, and then they brought in this guy Tom Campbell, mm-hmm. who, when a bill uh, one billionaire died and left about a billion dollars worth of cubist paintings to the Met, mm-hmm. and but the people who were in charge of carrying those uh, through to the Met negotiated with Campbell that they could give it to the Met if the Met basically created a new wing to store all the Cubist paintings. And they had to um, essentially, he tried to negotiate a $600 million uh, sum to build out this wing. And what ended up, so basically he was given a billion dollars in paintings and then tried to add on to that by building out a $600 million wing at the same time. Also the Mitt, the Whitney um, museum, and New York decided to find a new location, so the Met snapped that up. Uh, that was the Brewer, and part of the idea of that was to hold a bunch of the Cubist paintings. And while he's like, doing all well, I like of that, the idea of the Met discovering that their billion dollars worth of Cubist paintings are actually just shit that an NYU student drew on acid. <laughs> 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 we got confused. This is... <laughs> <laughs> And so, like the guy who donated his lauder, right? The yeah, yeah, lauder, yeah, the family, yeah, beautiful makeup, <laughs> gorgeous, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're a big, big makeup family, and um, so like while all this was happening, then like the financial crisis hit, mm. and a lot of their money dried up. And so while he's now trying to, ex- he he was trying to expand the Met. Uh, at the same time, they were suddenly losing money. He couldn't get any funding for the extension. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, he was trying to pivot to social media for the Met to attract the millennials. Uh, like, and when we say pivot, we <laughs> mean he was physically pivoting. His pelvis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so then at the same time, he was fucking everyone in the Met. Nice. Including, like, he got this very, like, high-end social media manager. Um, The union guards had to get it written in their contract that they didn't have to remove him from the mummies anymore. (laughs) (laughs) A hard-fought negotiation. (laughs) He would like, and he would like go over his expense or his like very expensive social media manager um, to give priority to ideas from like the subordinate of that social media manager mm-hmm. who he was fucking. Right. And so, um, 
And then, uh, according to like a time story, he also gave like this person like an infinite budget or, or just a big budget, partly because of the affair with no accountability. Yeah. Like, and so uh, suddenly the Met but found... But we have to lay off workers. Yeah. The Met suddenly found itself in financial <laughs> dire straits. Mm-hmm. Um, probably... Great band. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they found out they couldn't get uh, money for nothing. And <laughs> so um, they started laying off workers. Uh, they, they, uh, the retail workers, the people who work all the stores at mm-hmm. the museum, uh, they tried to, uh, they were in talks to unionize. Do you, do you, do you want to tell the story? Or? Yeah, it was around 2009, and all the retail workers, they signed their authorization cards with the NLRB to form a union. And they had a majority. They were ready to go to a vote. And uh, this lovely woman, Emily Rafferty, who used to be the chief financial operator for the museum, held a very persuasive cocktail reception party for them to inform them how they did not need a union. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, the museum would always take care of them. They were very important to them. And that kind of tactic is legal, right? I'm sure, you know, nobody had any complaints with the NLRB. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, when it went to a vote, they believed this very honest woman, and they voted down to unionize, which was a shock to everybody. But, you know, whatever. They liked the champagne. Very nice. And uh, (laughs) uh, several months later, the museum cut Mm. half of the staff at the retail (laughs) department. Wow. It was at least uh, imported champagne, right? <laughs> We'd like to think. And the the starting salary or the starting pay for these jobs is something like twenty three thousand. Uh-huh. Uh, the retail workers at the time, I, they're hourly because most they're of them hourly, are right, a part time, because right. you know they're not full time union. And uh, I believe they made around eight fifty to nine dollars an hour. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Just barely above. Okay, yeah, so Just, uh, now at the same time as that. Uh, the directors, uh, we, you can actually find the um, the tax forms uh, for the Met that list the um, directors and high-level executives' salaries. Uh, Mr. Campbell was making $1.6 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, several other people were making close to a million. Uh, some of the lower-level directors were making 300000 And then at the end of 2016 right before mr campbell who had to step down they all gave themselves bonuses of like five hundred thousand uh six hundred thousand or like he gave himself like a six hundred thousand dollar bonus he earned it poor babies poor babies which is you know the literally doesn't the salary of like dozens and dozens of like security staff and um retail workers the ones who are actually bringing the money into the met and protecting its uh priceless artwork and so they're and while they're instead of running it directly into their social media manager <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so they were giving themselves these you know bonuses while at the same time laying off all these people and um also the uh the high level staff they all their living expenses are taken care of. Right. They're given like penthouse suites next to the Met that they can live in rent free. 
Yeah, yeah, just on that, like from this New York Post article, it, it just like this little caddy thing. And it, in addition to like the Thomas Campbell, like I think he, according to New York Post, made $1.4 million in 2016. This is for running Ooh. the museum into the <laughs> ground. Uh, the Met allowed him to continue living. Just, in- just for the note, it it was not that large on the IRS documents. So there was definitely some like shell uh, <laughs> shell tricks going on there. Uh, the Met allowed him to continue living in the Fifth Avenue abode, the Fifth Avenue penthouse, for six months uh, pr- past his June 30, 2017 departure. A Met spokesman said the apartment would be sold, but would not comment on whether Campbell paid to live there after he stepped down. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so basically, he got to live there for free in addition to uh, everything else. It's very hot out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are these are artist housing. I mean, the rent is too damn high <laughs> for these millionaires. I mean, he's very hard out there. Uh. <laughs> Only when Instagram is brought up. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the pivot was all about. Tell me the engagement metrics. Um, Gross. Yeah, I guess we're. Uh, well, I, I know we didn't get to everything, but anything else before we wrap up here? Support Damien Hurst. You know, art, the art world's hard, and he works He works at it. Um, watch his, his terrible fake documentary on Netflix that is about literally art falling out of a ship, hmm. um, which I guess ties into the founding story of the Met. Uh, and I, I think that is it for this episode. So, uh, oh, I did want to say, uh, my father actually is a Irish immigrant. He does paint landscapes, and if you want to buy some actually good art that's not dog shit like Damien Hurst, you can go to patrickmccarthy.org. I actually run my dad's website. Yeah, I just have good. some p- oh. paintings up there. And if you'd like to buy one of my dad's paintings and then put it in a museum in order to increase its value <laughs> ten thousand percent and then resell it. You know, they're affordable. I mean, in the sense that I, I think he sells them for like 600 or something. That's not bad. So, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know what? If you're looking for a penny stock in the art world, <laughs> I think my dad's paintings are the ones to uh, help you launder your fucking El Chapo Guzman money. <laughs> <laughs> if you are stealing from a pension fund in your country Go and on. would like a place to park that money, <laughs> may I direct you to my dad's Irish landscapes <laughs> at patrickmccarthy.org. Um, but yes, uh, thank you so much, Veronica Cohen. Anything w- you would like to mention or, or plug before we get out of here? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for lending us uh, your great insight about the art world and about the Met Gala. I, I think that was one of my favorite parts, just learning about that. Yeah, um, yeah. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Polywell. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. We'll be back next week with another billionaire. Enjoy your Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks for listening. They had Rihanna, and it's a movie about diamonds, and they don't even play the song Shine Bright Like a Diamond. Like, what are you doing? I mean, in their defense, that song sucks. They haven't (laughs) excavated it out of South Africa yet. (laughs) 